This podcast is brought to you by the Accredited Snow Contractors Association. With industry standards-based certification, a discounted insurance program, networking events, and legislative efforts that strengthen the professional snow and ice management industry, your ASCA membership never stops working for you. Join today at ASCAonline.org. I'm Mike Zawacki, editor of Snow Magazine, and welcome to the podcast. Data collection and record keeping is a critical component for successful snow and ice management, especially when mitigating risk and liability to slip and fall claims. My guest today is Justine Bachman, an associate in the Philadelphia and Morristown, New Jersey offices of Freeman, Mathis, and Gary. Justine focuses her practice primarily in the areas of employment, HOA, commercial, construction, and professional liability litigation in both state and federal courts. She's also a wealth of information on the ins and outs of documentation management for snow and ice contractors. Our discussion runs the gambit from what constitutes a record, what needs to be kept, scenarios on how to maintain them, and how long they remain pertinent to your operation. Well, Justine, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today. You know, we discuss and hammer home to our audience the topic of documentation and how important it is um, not only to a success, to operate a successful snow and ice management company, but also in the eventual um, ability to uh, defend against a bogus slip and fall. Um, but I have a feeling that there's two points of views about when it comes to documentation. There's what the contractor believes they should be doing and and what they think they should be documenting successfully. And then from, from your side, someone who's a litigator defending a contractor against a slip and fall claim, there's probably a different definition of what appropriate or enough documentation is. And I kind of wanted to start off by talking about what do you see as maybe some overlooked pieces or or uh, items of documentation that could be critical to a defense, but that a contractor might not even realize, oh, this is documentation too. Absolutely. And thanks, Mike, again, for having me on the podcast. So in terms of documents that I usually ask my clients for, and sometimes they don't always have, uh, number one is text messages between employees and it might be subcontractors or property owners. So oftentimes the contractors communicate with other people via text messages. I see it all the time. I even communicate with my clients via text message at, at certain points. Um, and unfortunately, I have clients that just don't take any steps to save those text messages. You know, I get involved in the case maybe two years or even more than that later than when an incident happened. And my clients don't have text messages from employees because either employees are no longer employed by the particular client or just because, you know, employees go through, delete text messages and, you know, years later, they don't have them anymore. So that's something, you know, I really encourage my clients to have their employees, if they are communicating via text with kind of key people, either at the property owner or at the subcontractor level, to download text messages, whether that's once a month, once every three months, at the beginning, at the end of the snow season, um, but just to kind of employ some type of practice by which the text messages are being regularly downloaded from their employees' cell phones and saved 
somewhere on on their system, whether that's digitally or whether that's, you know, they just print them out and store them in a paper file. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something, you know, I usually encourage my clients to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Another document that can generally uh, be overlooked by clients is if there are any messages, written messages, again, whether that's either text or in emails, that by which the property owner or the person making the decision about whether services are needed are declining services despite the fact that my client is requesting the performance of service. There are times where, you know, I'll go in, I'll talk to my client, and I'll find out that the particular property owner, for example, was one that was kind of um, not necessarily willing to always allow services to be performed when my client felt it was necessary. So making sure that if that is the case, that that's documented somewhere, again, whether that's going to be um, something that my client just makes a note of, of in a file and keeps that, that piece of paper, you know, in the paper file, or whether it's going to be an email to the property owner or a text whichever, um, that essentially indicates, look, you know, we kind of suggested service be performed today and you chose not not to have services performed. So that that's another thing that, you know, I can be important, particular situation where services may may have been needed to be performed on a particular day, um, and based on kind of this pattern and practice of the property owner or again the individual making the decision about whether service was needed, um led my client to either not necessarily go and perform services or um, for my client to not even ask for services to be performed. Um, Mm -hmm. Then another thing um, that kind of is overlooked is if there's any pre-qualification checklist or any type of document that my client might prepare in assessing whether to um, hire a particular subcontractor to use on-site. I've had clients before where Before they engage in the services with a subcontractor, they do some type of um, research into the subcontractor, whether that's they go on site, they they have a meeting with someone, they know kind of what um, equipment and what type of personnel that subcontractor has on site, um, or whether it's just kind of a basic telephone call or anything that my my client may do to investigate whether a particular subcontractor is appropriate for a particular site or just in general, you know, a subcontractor that is someone that my client might use on on any site. Um, So if there's any type of document that my client has showing that, um, and if there isn't any document, I recommend that that's something that uh, my clients employ and keep keep a written record of because, again, sometimes you'll have a situation where a client will subcontract the entirety of their particular contract with a property owner to a subcontractor, and then it becomes an issue of whether the subcontractor adequately performed services. And with respect to my client, whether my client was diligent in um, hiring a subcontractor that was appropriate for, for, for a particular site. Mm-hmm. Um, so any type of research that's done into the ability of the subcontractor to adequately perform services before services um, were performed is something that um, you know, I recommend there either be a written record of, and if that's not something that my clients typically do, encourage them in the future to kind of employ that practice. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk a little bit about site reports. That's another very important document. And then I f- believe that in talking with contractors, they have a handle on the minimum requirements for what goes into a site report. But from a litigator's point of view, and, and especially when you're thinking about defending against a slip and fall, what are some other details you would suggest that should be included in a site report? Absolutely. Um, so the first thing that I always recommend is um, 
if there's any type of change to the scope of services as reflected in the written contracts. So if you go on site, you have a meeting with the property owner, and you realize that the scope of service, the services that are going to be performed, are a little bit different than what's in the written contract, that needs to be noted somewhere. Um, and I recommend that that be noted um, in a follow-up email um, after the site inspection to um, your contact at the property owner or property manager, just confirming in writing, um, you know, the contracts say X as to scope of service, but based on our pre-site inspection, we're, the scope of service is actually Y, and, you know, this email confirms that. And I understand that, you know, this, I have clients that might feel a little uncomfortable kind of about being so formal about it, but from my perspective and in defending this, it's just so much easier when you actually have something in writing that confirms that. Um, or you can even just, if you don't feel comfortable necessarily sending such a formal email, you can just have a note of it, you know, when you go to your site inspection, just, you know, on a piece of paper, note that and have yourself initial that and have your contact at the property owner, property manager initial that as well and just keep that in your file somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Should that include isolated requests like you know um, you know contractor shows up to the site and for whatever reason the property manager or owner says hey uh, this for this you know we're having a big sale this weekend or we're having a you know some can you not push the snow where we agreed to in the contract can you push it on the opposite end of the of the lot or hey you know can you uh, put more de-icer down or oh you know there's no need to put de-icer here and it kind of goes in contrary to the what was agreed upon in the original contract should those things also be marked on uh, on uh, on that particular site report for that day. Yeah, absolutely. I always recommend that. Again, if there's anything that's out of the typical behavior, anything that's out of the ordinary, always kind of make a record of that because again, I I get involved in cases usually at least two years after incidents happen, people's memories fade or you don't have the employees working for you anymore who were working on site when this happened. Um, and again, you know, if you have it written down in a document, that's a, so much easier for um, a jury to believe or for a plaintiff's counsel or anyone involved in the case to believe. You know, a document that was created at the time of the, at the, time of the incident or shortly after um, that kind of goes to the issues of the case versus, you know, someone's memory two years later. Um, it, it's just much easier if there's anything that's done that's out of the ordinary for that to be marked right away. And again, I understand, you know, you're on site, there's a lot of snow coming down, you guys have other jobs you have to get to. It's not necessarily feasible to mark it down right then and there. And I understand that. Um, and I think, you know, juries understand that as well. But, you know, if a couple days later when you're going back through preparing the invoices um, and you realize, like, oh, yeah, we didn't necessarily put ice melt down here or we did this one thing that was different, make sure that you write that down. And you can even include that on the invoice that you send to the property owner um, or or if you send the invoice via email, you know, marking that in the content um, of the email itself, like, hey, you know, we did this differently for this particular th- for this particular incident because of this. Mm-hmm. So yes, I always recommend. I mean, I'm really going to tell you, you prob- you pretty much can't have too much documentation from my perspective. <laughs> um, so my answer is probably always going to be yes, document it. But I again, I understand the realities of the situation are mm-hmm. not such that you can always document it right then and there. But if you can at some point document it, 
hopefully shortly after the snow event or ice event, precipitation event, then I, then I highly recommend that. Um, another thing I might recommend is if you can take photos after services are performed, mm-hmm. I highly recommend those. Take photos um, and either store them digitally um, or, again, if you just kind of go back to the office and have somebody print them out and put them kind of in your file with the invoices for that particular snow event, um, I recommend that because oftentimes my clients are not finding out about slip and falls until, again, the two years. Um, and I practice in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Two years is the um, statute of limitations on slip and falls. So that's why I keep on saying, you know, I don't usually get involved in the case until at least two years after the incident happened because typically claims are not brought until right we're right up against that statute of limitations. Um, so, you know, if you have photos showing that services were adequately performed on the day in question, then, you know, we have that as a doc, real documentary evidence showing that, um, you know, there there wasn't any snow, there wasn't any ice in this area where the person is alleging to have fallen, or that services were performed adequately, because sometimes, you know, we'll have cases where services are performed three days before the incident happened, and somebody makes a claim that, um, you know, three days ago services weren't performed adequately. Yeah, we haven't had anybody out there that went to the site, but of course services weren't performed adequately because somebody slipped and fell three days later. <laughs> right. And, you know, we want, to, we want to be able to kind of defeat that, that theory of liability. And if we have photos say, showing, look, you know, this is how service was when we left. This is how services looked. This is how the site looked. You know, if there was some issue, we're not on site every day. Somebody should have contacted us and let us know, look, you need to come back out here and service it. But when we left, services were adequately performed. So that's something I, I encourage as well. And I mean, everybody has cell phone nowadays. It's so easy to just take sure. a couple photos right after services are done. And in fact, you know, sometimes I think juries question why there aren't photos. You mm-hmm. know, we're, we live in a society where everybody watches Law and Order type of episodes or like CSI. People think like there's all this document and there's all this evidence that clients should have um, in supporting their claims, whether that's from the plaintiff's perspective or for the defense perspective. And, you know, again, if we can kind of give that to the jury or we can, if we don't even get to the jury, you know, if we have these photos showing this early on in the litigation, hopefully we can kind of quash um, or reduce the claimant's claims for damages as much as possible. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with um, one of those isolated requests um, that are happening on, you know, a day at an event, should you go and try to get the person who's making the request, whether it's a property manager or an owner, uh, to, you know, when you mark it on your site report, should you have them initial or sign that as well? Does that make a difference? I think it does. It, it absolutely does. But again, I, I think just having it noted somewhere right. is, is the most important part. Again, I understand the realities of the situation are such that Oftentimes, things are kind of crazy on site, and you're just trying to get your job done. You're trying to move on to the next site. You don't have this particular property. That's the only property you're responsible for. You know, have multiple crews. You're trying to coordinate. Sometimes, you the having the person who's authorizing the change um, is not ne- having them initially. It's not necessarily always feasible because sometimes that person might not even be on site. Again, if you can send an email to that person or send a text to that person, um, if they aren't on site, just confirming that. Again, it doesn't have to be the day of the incident, but hopefully shortly after, whether that's later on in the day or a couple days later when you're preparing the invoices, you don't necessarily need even them to have initialed, but just to actually send something to that person so you have something in writing showing, look, I sent an email to this person, I sent a text to this person confirming that. Of course, getting the initial document is, is the best. 
if that's not possible for whatever reason, then, you know, just having something in writing to that individual shortly after the snow event where maybe something was done differently mm-hmm. is likely going to be sufficient to kind of make our point in this particular instance. Should a contractor be leery of who's making that uh, isolated request? And for example, let's say um, a receptionist says, hey, you know, you don't need to put so much salt down in front of the, uh, uh, in front of the entryway. You're just, the people are just tracking that and it makes such a mess. Or, or you have, uh, you know, it's a retail establishment and one of the uh, retail owners makes a, 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 an odd request to do or to not do something. Uh, should a contractor, you know, how should a contractor handle that? Do those people, does anybody making a request have the authority to do that? Or should it be stipulated, maybe even in the contract, that, a, only three people can make a, a change service request. Yeah, so I would recommend that if a person who the contractor is, does not typically deal with makes the request, that the contractor contact the person who they have been dealing with and, and kind of get clarity on what exactly should be done. So, for example, if you always deal with Rob at the property management company, and Rob is the person who always authorizes services or declines services, but you're dealing with Mike for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, this particular day, I would make sure, you know, contact Rob and make sure, does Mike have authority to kind of change this up or to consent or not consent? Um, and again, I understand, you know, um, things might be crazy in the heat of the moment, but just making sure that your particular contact, whoever you've been dealing with, is aware of it and kind of gives authority is the most important thing. I understand, you know, you might be at a kind of a strip mall where you have a couple different retail sites on on site and, you know, a particular owner might come out and ask you to do something a little bit differently. Um, I would just get contact, again, whoever the person is you deal with for that particular site and just confirm Mm -hmm. that that's something that either should occur or should not occur depending on the particular request. And again, note that in writing if you can, whether that's follow-up via text, follow-up via email, um, but but definitely get that in writing. That's great advice. What do you do, and and, and this is going to make individuals shudder, what do you do if you lose documentation or it gets damaged? And we all know accents happen. You spill mm-hmm. a cup of coffee on your on your clipboard full of documentation, or <laughs> God forbid, you you drop it in a puddle, and and the documents, mm-hmm. you know, the pen starts to run or smear. Is there a way to recover or even reproduce that documentation that is considered legally acceptable if it's a not the original document, but like one that was put together maybe a day or two after the fact? First, I would say I always recommend, if possible, that my clients kind of digitally store their documents so Mm -hmm. that we're not dealing with paper copies. You know, if we can digitally store, then it's not really an issue if you lose the actual paper copy. And honestly, it just makes it easier in terms of, you know, having to actually store paper paper documents versus, you know, kind of putting the documents on the cloud or wherever you're going to digitally store them. So that might be the first thing that I recommend to kind of avoid this particular situation. However, if you are in a situation where documents get damaged or lost, um, either before you can can get them digitally stored or if you just don't necessarily have a digital storage available. Um, there are ways that we can reproduce documents, but it is going to be noted. Um, you do need to know if the original document was 
loss, damage, etc. I mean, it could be something as simple as, oh, I just spilled coffee on, on this document, so I'm just going to kind of handwrite in something. That's right. okay. Or, you know, if um, there's an incident report created, and maybe sometimes I have clients that handwrite an incident report, mm-hmm. and then they also create a digital copy of the incident report. Both of those incident reports should be kept. Both of those should be, able to, should be able for me to be able to produce if I need to should, you know, litigation ensue. However, if the handwritten copy gets lost or gets damaged, as long as there's kind of a note in the file that that's what happened, and maybe we can explain, you know, again, note it, okay, it got damaged, you know, somebody spilled coffee on her, somebody dropped some food on it. As long as that's noted and we can, you know, kind of give a credible explanation, I think generally that that's okay. Again, juries understand, you know, we're all human beings Mm -hmm. um, and that things get lost, things get damaged. But we're always going to need to know that that this is not the original document because, again, the parties are entitled to the actual original, and if there's some reason that the original isn't available, we just need to make them aware of that. Generally, it's not not necessarily a problem, again, as long as there's some type of credible explanation. Now, if there's a situation where, let's say, there was an incident report created and it's completely lost, nobody can find a copy, and we can't necessarily try to, to replicate it because the incident report was created two years ago, and again, you know, we uh-huh. don't have it, it's, it's not in the paper file, that's going to be something that is from the jury perspective, going to be something that's going to be looked down upon, and you know, parties can even try to get um, what's called an adverse inference. So, an inference that essentially that the incident report was helpful to the opposing party's case um, if their document did exist and is no longer there. So, again, that's really why I encourage my clients to digitally store their documents. Or, again, you know, if if there is something that's written, if you want to store that somewhere else that hopefully, you know, it's in a safe place in an office, in a um, cabinet somewhere. But again, you know, obviously people, places move, um, there could be fire damage, water damage. Um, right. So that's again, too, why I really encourage digital storage of all types of documents. Mm-hmm. You ever run into any incidences where someone has done that? They've stored, they've converted and or store everything digitally, and they've had some kind of catastrophic data loss and they lose the digital files? I have not had that, um, thankfully, um, and I hope that none of my clients ever have to deal with that. Unfortunately, of course, that is kind of the world we live in right now. But, but again, I do, I do think that right now digital storage is just the safest, the safest way. You know, and if, if you do find out about an incident before a lawsuit happens, I highly recommend that you turn over any documents to your insurance carrier right away. Because again, you might not litigation might not ensue for two years, but then the insurance company also has a copy of all the documents. You know, so if you have the the post site um, photos, if you have any type of incident report, um, if you have timesheets, if you have the written authorization of services, certificates of insurance, you want to send all of that to the insurance carrier because then not only do you have copies of it as as you know my client as a snow contractor, but then the insurance carrier also has copies. So if there is a particular incident where, you know, my client can't locate documents, I've certainly gone to the insurance carrier and asked, like, hey, my client can't find this. Was this sent over? Did my client send this over with the original documents notifying you of of a claim uh, or of a potential claim? Um, And I have gotten documents from the insurance carrier that my client has not been able to locate. One last question, and this is, I I think this, you probably get this all the time. How long do I need to keep these records? 
So I I would recommend at least two years. Two years is the minimum because, again, you have lawsuits that the statute of limitations is two years. So I would say two years at the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. I encourage five years, and I say that because oftentimes you might get a case where the lawsuit might get filed, but my client is not necessarily made aware of the fact that a lawsuit was filed until, let's say, two and a half years or three years after the incident happened, just because um, maybe the plaintiff's attorney doesn't serve my client properly or Maybe the person who accepted the lawsuit on behalf of my client didn't necessarily let the person um, in charge at my client know that there was this lawsuit, this, these documents that came in. Um, so then I don't get involved until, you know, a couple, you know, six months after the lawsuit was filed or even longer. Um, so I always recommend just on the safe side, five years. I, I don't think, you know, especially with digital storage, if you can store it that way, that um, that is, you know, any burdensome. And if it is, you know, you can hire, you know, whether that's digitally, um, again, that, that shouldn't be too hard. But if you do are a contractor that kind of keeps paper documents, just store them off-site somewhere um, so that you have those documents. Again, we don't want to get into a situation where at one time you had the documents and you don't have them anymore because you didn't store them for long enough. Because, again, getting back to that, my comment earlier about the adverse inference, you can get a party who asks the judge asked the jury to kind of infer that those documents would have been helpful to the opposing side's case because you did have them and you got rid of them. Right. Okay. I know I said I had one last question, but uh, this is the last question. You <laughs> talked about storing things digitally. That's very, a very important um, uh, uh, takeaway here. Let me ask you, should you, if you're storing these things digitally at your headquarters, so should you also be having these stored off-site somewhere, um, you know, with a, a third-party, you know, I guess, documentation provider, you know, records uh, place? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the right term for that is. but So I, I would – I think that, you know, generally, depending on how sophisticated um, of a client you are, if you feel comfortable with your digital stores that you have in-house, you know, if you have an IT department, if you have people that specifically are dedicated to kind of just this digital storage or, again, just to making sure that kind of the computer system runs the way it's supposed to, mm -hmm. I think that that, that that typically would be sufficient. Mm -hmm. However, if you don't necessarily have a formal IT department or if you don't have formal policies, procedures in place for digital storage, then I would recommend hiring, um, you know, an off-site vendor to kind of store the documents, make sure that they're that they're being kept in a manner that um, is appropriate for the particular business um, and for the particular documents. You might not necessarily need to keep certain documents for five years, like I'm recommending for for these types of documents. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that that's that's something to keep in mind. The other option, too, is contacting an attorney and asking attorneys generally how long, based on my particular business model, should I be keeping documents like this and getting some advice with respect to your particular business, because obviously everyone's business needs are different. So if I'm keeping five years of site records on my laptop, I should probably look at a, an outside provider to back that up? Yeah, I, I, yes, absolutely, because you, know, you never know what's going to happen to your personal laptop especially if, you know, this is something, a laptop that you, you use for business and, and for pleasure. I mean, you never know what, what could happen to your personal um, computer. So, yes, if you don't have a necessarily sophisticated manner in which you're storing that, I would absolutely recommend contacting a vendor to, to have those documents stored.